You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We're glad you're here, if you're here, and I assume if you're hearing us, you're here, right? That, that makes, how it goes? Yeah, I think so. Seems to follow. It's kind of like uh, the speech that uh, Abigail gave David. He is as his name, and he is a fool. <laughs> foolishness is with him because they're something of that nature. That's a pretty good memory. You actually slept since last time we talked about that. I know, and I actually so. <laughs> remembered what we talked about on the last episode. That's pretty good, right? Yeah, I, I'm impressed. <laughs> so... You know, there's my one. We've been doing this two years. <laughs> it's hard to believe it's been, has it been two years? It uh, By the time this airs, it'll be like o- over two years. Like this weekend, actually, that we're recording, this is the first weekend of October. Wow. Um. Yeah, this is the Good the night. first weekend re- we released the podcast was two weekends, two, the first weekend of October two years ago. So Wow. It doesn't seem like we've been doing it that long. Yeah, I'll see if I can find a party horn sound or something. <laughs> I probably won't. I'm really you too won't. lazy for that. Yeah, no, let's don't get their hopes up for things you aren't going to do. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's that's basically kind of how it is. Oh, that was kind of loud. Sorry. Um, but yeah. Where are we today? It, this we, has been like we a crazy are, weekend. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's been a little nuts. Yeah, we uh, we weren't expecting to be recording yet. We were You were supposed to do an episode of Commentarians. Um, I guess that's going to be kind of put off till later, hopefully. Yeah. Um, hopefully Doug will feel better. Um, if yeah. not, I guess we'll figure something out. So come up with some random, you know, pull a kid's movie off your shelf or something. Right. <laughs> do yeah. A commentary do a on commentary that. on something. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, that's, but yeah, no, we are, we are still in Samuel, first Samuel. First Samuel. Cause there's it, two of them. It, actually. Yeah. And if you want to get real technical, there's four cause Kings is still the book of Samuel. But and, there's also only one because they're all one book. Yeah. And which, you know, if anybody's forgotten, they're divided up that way because this is the standard length of a scroll. And so that made them easier to uh, catalog. And I would I would think that it would be nice not to have to roll out 50 feet of a scroll to find a particular passage. Yeah. Yeah. Books were a great invention. They, they really were. And a lot of people don't realize that a part of the influence for inventing them was so that uh, when Christians were speaking with uh, Jews in the early, uh, you know, in the early years, it was easier to go back and reference the Old Testament um, verses and passages if you had a book rather than a scroll. Hmm. So, you know, uh, another thing we can think, uh, thank Judaism and religion uh, and Christianity religions for. So I, yeah. I like that. I mean, it's interesting. I'll, I'll do some. Some looking mm-hmm. on that. Well, you know, I think we forget that a lot of things we take for granted, people didn't invent them because they thought this is a good idea. They did it because they had a need and they had to come up with something to fill that purpose. And right. so it, it was, I don't know, just random trivia, things that float around in my head. Yeah. So okay. well, that works. Well, we actually ended at the end of, cha- at the end of a chapter, right? Uh, chapter 25, which just ends I, with a interesting uh, story of David finding a new wife and another wife. Yeah, a couple of them. And then what happened to his old wife? Yeah, just, you know, whatever. They, they, he's got a few, so he can afford to lose one. Um, no, yeah, it, so we ended with Abigail and uh, her, her little story there. And I, I just thought that was a lot of fun and just so interesting. But then we're getting ready to go into chapter 26. Mm-hmm. And 
one of the things you're going to discover about this chapter, it is almost identical to chapter 24. And a lot of the phrases and the, the things that are said are very similar. And a lot of uh, commentators have thought that maybe 24 and 26 were actually the same story, just told a different way. They're sure. that close. But I don't think that's the case. I really believe that there is a reason that both accounts are, are re-kept for the modern reader or, you know, the ancient reader, too. But All the readers. All the readers. Of all ages. There we go. Encompass everyone. Uh, but then you've got that really interesting insertion of, of Abigail's story with, between these two accounts. So you, you get to see this, this progression of David as a person. And it's really important that we understand David is changing. Right. I and I think we forget that. I mean, we have these really different images of David in our head whenever, whenever we talk about him. Are we talking about David the the shepherd boy uh, minding the flocks? Are we talking about David in Saul's courts and being, mm-hmm. you know, playing the the canor and having spears flung at him? And then a lot of times we forget about this David the warlord who's just marauding around the hills in trying to figure out how to provide for this, you know, fledgling little kingdom that he's building within Israel until mm-hmm. he takes mm-hmm. the throne. So these years also, it should be, should be noted, the, the writer of Chronicles really does not address them because David is such a questionable person at this time. And so when we get to the end of Samuel and we, uh, the beginning of 2 Samuel, where Saul dies, this is really where Chronicles picks up. And so it's going to be fun to, to see how the two different writers approach the material because I do want to bring out the, the comparisons and contrast. Mm. But we don't talk about this part because David's not always the most favorable character at this point in his life. Right. So, but we're picking up in 26 in verse 1. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, is not David hiding himself, himself in the hills of Hick... Sorry, I always get mixed up with my writing. Hakalah which is east of Jeshimon. So how do you like those words? If this, like I said, if this sounds very familiar, this one actually goes back past 24, and it's in chapter 23, verse 19. We're told, Then the Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among, hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh on the, on the hill of Hakish, which is in Jeshimon? Sorry, I need to write better notes. But anyway, yeah. it's the, almost the exact same. Don't agree with me on that. It's almost the exact same wording. And it's very close to 24.1 where Saul is told of a, a name, by an unnamed source that David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So we're, we have the, the themes. David's still on the run. It, it's happening over a large expanse of time. So... What we're doing is we're, we're setting up for the comparison right off the bat. The writer wants you to see that there is a distinction. Mm-hmm. And so when we read this too, we shouldn't, be, uh, we shouldn't be surprised. There's always been this doubling aspect in Saul's life. We've talked about that in previous episodes. And so to see this doubling element one more time, one last time, it is significant. And what we're doing here is we're highlighting the shift in from David the renegade to David the king. Right. And, and how Saul, I mean, he's just becoming more and more uh, unhinged uh, as time goes by. So verses 2 and 3, we, we find out that Saul does go to the wilderness of Ziph, and he takes 3,000 men with him, just as he did in chapter 24. So we got that same element. 
he camps on uh, the hills of Haklia. And David stays hidden in the wilderness. So again, everything's playing out the way it was. The, um, the first three verses of this chapter, Saul's the, the one who's doing the acting. He, he's the one who, who is uh, instigating everything that happens. He arose, he went, he, in, he encamped. So mm. he's the subject of everything. And um, 3A is where David kind of steps in. And there's a huge shift. If you, if you read this in the Hebrew, it becomes very apparent. And even in the English, if you're paying close attention, in verses um, 3, you, you start to get the, this change of focus where David remains. And David continues to be the subject because he's the one who sent, he's the one who saw, he's the one who rose, he, he came, he saw, he conquered, what have you. But the primary point of view is Saul's no, one, no longer the one we care about. David is the one we need to know about. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I find it kind of interesting, you know, that, you know, we how different we think of kingship mm-hmm. and, you know, being uh, in charge of things these days, because nowadays, you know, you have someone who's in charge of something, they're not on the front lines. They're not, you know, they're, they're very protected. I was protected. Sorry, mm-hmm. I kind of a little mumbled <laughs> there, but they're very protected. Um, and, and this, it's like, He's out camping with the Saul's out camping with the men. Mm-hmm. He's the king, and I, I was thinking about that. I was like, well, you know, I guess in that day and age, it's really not going to be terribly different than if you're at home. I mean, you might right. have a few more things at the ready, but you really—I mean, it's not like sitting at home in air conditioning right. versus going out <laughs> camping. Uh, you know, it's it's going to be. You know, you're not going to have the the big shift in like the climate. You're not going to you're not going to have your refrigerator at home, food at the ready. You know, snacks available at all times. So I, I'm thinking about how this plays out with my life. It's like it, it's pretty much what you're saying. It's like if I take my camper from where it's quote unquote permanently set up to the lake. Sure. Uh, you know, it's not yeah. going to be that big of a difference. And, and and there is that. And what I find interesting when you pointed out there is when we get to Chronicles, uh, there's actually points where David's men go, no, you're not going to be on the front lines. Mm-hmm. We, we want to be the ones who are fighting because we can't afford to lose you. And we don't ever find that with Saul. We, we don't see his men rising up to defend him this way. Well, I, I don't see Saul as the kind of person whose men would, would contradict him readily, since he's kind of murdery. <laughs> and, the, um, and, and I don't see Saul you know, listening if they did. So there's that. Right. And then there also, you know, there might also be this passive aggressive, like, yeah, just go ahead. Just go (laughs) on out there. Front lines will support you. Right. And if you're taken out, then we're no longer ruled by a madman. Right. And and so, yeah, that's exactly it. And so the win-win. Right. And, you know, we actually, uh, there's some places in, um, in the history of Europe, where we actually kind of see that same uh, attitude. So it's not uncommon to humanity. Sure. And what I think is really interesting about this story, too, is as we're moving that focus, we we get to see David step into his own, where he he stops being the reactor. Mm -hmm. Now he's taking matters into his own hands. And that's really what differentiates the two stories. The, The question is, is he going to take matters into his own own hands in a very appropriate way or is he going to overstep because Saul's issue always has been overstepping overreaching being highly reactive David needs to be a different kind of king so um 
there is um, the uh, Ziphites that have been shown up. Sorry, they're not they're not going to give up on, on removing David. They they right. have something against David. They've shown up three times, twice, nothing has come of it. Um, you know, they, they kind of just seems to be, they seem to be instigators. And this is like this one last attempt. And what's really interesting about the Ziphites is they're Calebites. So Nabal was a Calebite. So they may actually this time be responding to the fact that David married Nabal's widow, took over the property, took over the wealth that this guy had, mm. and they could be feeling like we really deserve this not David. Uh, yeah, I can see that, how, how that would uh, put somebody out. Right. Well, and, and legally, they would have been closer relatives. And mm -hmm. so even if it was a Leverite marriage, they would have qualified before David. So David, you know, stepping in and taking Abigail as a wife really set off a political uh, powder keg there. And, you know, that, that kind of uh, resentment makes it attractive to keep things stirred up. So... David has confirmed that Saul is after him. And remember when uh, David was hiding in chapter 23, he, he requests, Saul requests that the spies confirm mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. where David is. And then when he heard where David was, uh, then he was set out. Now, anytime we, we hear spies, we think of Jericho, obviously that kind of springs to mind and we have to wonder, you know, what kind of spies are these going to be? And, David now goes to Saul and he has Saul's location confirmed. So we've got that reversal there from chapter 24. Now mm -hmm. it's not Saul sending spies. So verse 25, then David rose and came to the place where Saul encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with, uh, lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. So 3,000 men all camped, the king's in the middle of the, of the camp, Abner's there, and David knows where he is. And this should be the, the safest place a king should be. Mm -hmm. Now, if we remember back to Judges, you can almost hear the echoes of chapter 7, verses 9 through 18. Gideon's afraid, God, but God sends him into the Midian camp where he overhears the people talking about the vision where Gideon, the camp has been given into Gideon's hand. Right. And we know what this event means here to go into a camp is actually to, to confirm a victory or a possible victory if you're brave enough to take it, because that's what happened to Jericho. And that's exactly what happened with Gideon. Gideon acted faithfully to what he saw, what his spies reported back, what he saw when he was a spy. Now with Jericho, obviously, the um, spies made a, 10 of the spies made a false report and did not act in faith. So there wasn't a victory. But Joshua and Caleb, who did give a good report, now, they, they were victorious, and they're the ones who actually entered into the promised land. So, which I'm not sure uh, exactly how the connections play out with the fact that we are dealing with the Ziphites and Nabal, the Calebites, who were descendants from Caleb. So, I, I'm sure there's some kind of something there, but uh, I just I couldn't put it all together. Fair so, enough. So, if anybody figures it out, let us know. <laughs> so, verse 6. Then David said to Ahimelech, remember this is uh, the name of the priest, but this is actually a different guy because this is Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zariah. And then he said, go down to me, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? So we've got this list of names. Um, Ahimelech the Hittite, this is the only time we see him. 
we we never hear of him again. He's identified as a Hittite, but he has a Semitic name. Mm. So we think what what most commentators think, and this this makes the most sense, that he was part of a Hittite clan that converted and joined to Israel. And so we we think that there was. Yeah, I mean that would make sense. I mean, even even in non-converts during the time, you see people with names that be reused in one language and not in another. So mm-hmm. there's well, a possibility of that as well. Um, the the thing that I find funny about this is David's like, "Who's going to go with me?" And I can just imagine this conversation of like, "We've got him surrounded." I'm just, you know, it'd be really funny. Like, let's. <laughs> I'm going to go walk down there, but we're going to go just look around. Hmm. I mean, I can see this. I mean, because you figure, I don't know how old David is here. I'm guessing probably 20s. Yeah, probably you know? mid to, yeah, mid 20s. You know, when you, you know when you're still like, you know, gung-ho for crazy <laughs> antics, right? And I can see David be like, I'm going to go. Who's going to go with me? Let's just. We're going to get short sheet the bed and yeah. saran wrap the toilets and yes. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, you know, he, he asked for volunteers and, and. You know, he's not taking the whole, you know, he's not taking all 600 men there. And you have to wonder at this point, what's he up to? And I was going to make one other note about the Hittites. One reason why we think that there was a group that converted. Of course, we have other Hittites, uh, most notably Uriah the Hittite. Uh, So there was this group of Hittites that were loyal to Israel and the kings of Israel. And Mm. when you're loyal to a king, that means you're also loyal to the God that they serve. Mm. And... uh, the Bible's very clear on that. And so we're actually going to get into some fun stuff with that, with uh, Naaman. And whenever he uh, goes to the prophet and then takes the land oh, yeah, yeah, of yeah. Israel yeah. back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, there's some interesting theological stuff there. I like that. Well, and, Can't and, wait until we get to that story. Well, and this story actually plays on a lot of the same themes. So, But we're going to get there. Abishai is Joab's brother. Now, we haven't really met Joab yet. Uh, he's the son of Zuria. Now, to make sense of that, we need to know who Zuria is. Yep. So in 1 Chronicles 2.16, we find out that Zuria is David's sister. It's mm-hmm. never clarified in the book of Samuel. Uh, the book of Samuel just assumes you're going to know who this is. She has three sons, Abishai, Joab, and Ashal. Now, when these guys are mentioned, they are typically identified as the son of Zuria. And they're with David. And it's really unusual that we find this because... Typically, sons are identified by the name of their father, not their mother. Right. And so she had to be pretty significant in her own right to, to be the one who who's the sons are, are known by. Mm-hmm. And the, the fact that we don't even know who the father is and leads a lot of scholars, you know, they want to explain it by, oh, well, her husband probably died very young or very early possible i'm not negating that possibility but the fact that even despite that we have so many stories where people are still known by their father's name even if he died so i think there was something significant about her it may have just been she was david's sister pretty prestigious family to belong to yeah but who who knows so anyway abishai um is also identified like i said as the brother of joab we're going to encounter him um him in second in second Samuel two eighteen, and he's going to be really big in David's army and throughout the rest of David's story. So uh, this this brief introduction, along with her prominence in David's story, really makes us think that um, the writer expected us, us to know. So he asked both men, 
So, and you know, the other thing, Abishai's his nephew. And so he's talking to his nephew and he's talking to um, this Hittite who may have been a convert, but, and he may have also uh, been a mercenary. And so we were trying to figure out exactly how he fits. And it could be that the, the mercenaries did convert or that uh, they became part of the tribe through the fact that they were being hired. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point in time, I don't think David really had the funds. Uh, now, he'd just gotten them with Abigail, but up to this point, he'd not really had the funds to hire mercenaries. He was just drawing to him the, the outcast and the marginalized. Which makes you think he's probably just, uh, you know, probably pretty influential, charismatic personality. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, but, I mean, Hittites in and of themselves, I mean, they're, they're pretty brutal people. And they're known for their fighting skills and their, their military techniques and the things that they do. Uh, they're just amazing warriors. Mm. So it's the fact that David's asking this guy and then he's asking um, Ashaya, uh, Abishai is really telling because every time we encounter Abishai from here on out, he's mixed up in something bloody or he's wanting to kill someone. Right. So he's not asking, you know, meek and mild guys to come hold his hand as he strolls through the, the camp. He's asking some of the most violent people that are following him to join him. And the, the writer is really playing with this here because we all know Saul has to die. And we know that David's going to win. But the thing is, you may not have known how that was going to happen if you were living even in the exile and after this kingship of David and part of ancient Israel, because you know, how much of your history did you know? And so we've, we've been given this dramatic flick of, of script where David is acting, not reacting, and we've got him making deliberate choices. And, and even this one single choice that we have here to, to bring the most violent men along with him is very telling of how he's, how he's changing. And so, um, you know, if you've, if you've read the Torah, and you've read all of Judges up to this point, and you, you aren't reading Samuel as a bunch of proof text to try to, you know, make a great flannel graph. You, we're really dealing with some, some major suspense here. So in verses 6a, Abishai volunteers to go with David, and Ahimelech the Hittite just disappears from the Bible. We don't know what happens to him. And David goes with, into the camp with Abishai, and Saul's asleep. We're told that the spear is stuck in the ground by his head and Abner and the army are asleep surrounding him. So this is not good. This is the kind of the worst situation that Saul could find himself in or that even Abner can find himself in. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Roman guards, if they fell asleep at a post, they were put to death. You, You did not fall asleep. So... The fact that, that Abner is asleep is even more of a problematic than Saul being asleep because he should have been the one guarding his king. So Abishai, in verse 8, he says to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one strike of the spear and I will not strike him twice. I can get the job done is pretty much what he's saying. Yeah, well, he's saying yeah, basically saying it'll be pretty easy. And, you know, I, I do think it's funny to pin him to the ground is used because he told David, you know, earlier Saul said he was going to pin David to the wall. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of a funny connection. But then there's kind of an insult to injury aspect of it too, <laughs> that it sounds like uh, Abishai was ready to like, well, just use this, look, this, the guy you're trying to kill and a spear, 
right there. It's, yeah. It's, it's it, ready-made murder. Well, exactly. And this goes there's right the, back. There's the episode title. <laughs> ready-made murder. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it goes right back to the incident in the cave. What, you know, what did David's men say? Uh, look, the Lord's delivered him into your hand. You know, you, you need to go kill him and you, mm-hmm. you can do this. It's, it's obvious that you should do this. Mm-hmm. And so we have that echo there. And the only major difference here is that Abishai is saying, I'll kill him for you. Mm-hmm. So we've got this shift here in the perceptions of the men, because before this, the men wanted David to prove himself by killing Saul. Right. Now he's a king who's worthy to be served. And how do you honor the king? Will you kill the king's in- enemies? Right. And, and so the story's not the same story. And we're beginning to really see that starting to pick up. And, you know, Abishai's been with David a while. I mean, we were told earlier in 22.1 that all of David's family had joined him. So, you know, Abishai could have been with him in the cave. He could have known what happened there. And so the fact that he's picking that same, um, that, that same language back up is kind of telling about the way that the men are, are thinking of David at this point. And, you know, the fact that he's willing to get his hands dirty for David is also very telling. So verse nine, but David said to Abishai, oh, I, I just realized something. Let me back up because okay. the, the fact that he's willing to get his hands dirty for David, remember back in uh, the episode with the priest of Nov, whenever mm-hmm. Saul mm-hmm. wanted his men to kill the priest, none of them wanted to do it. And right. he had to tell Doeg the Edomite, hey, you... you you brought it up. You, you thought the idea was good, so you need to carry it out. And so you, not only is Abishai being loyal to David, he's an Israelite being loyal to David. So we're seeing him contrasted with Saul and being put above uh, Saul there. So that thought just came to my uh, little head while we were talking. So, Fair enough. Verse 9, But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? So David reminds Abishai of the reasoning why he didn't kill Saul in the cave and why it's not just important David doesn't kill Saul. No one should kill Saul. Because remember, mm-hmm. he had to tear into his men after he didn't kill Saul in, in the cave. He had to say, this is the right thing for us to do. If I'm not going to kill him, you don't get to kill him. And so we're having kind of a recap of, of that. Yeah, and I, I do find that pretty interesting because you have David here. He's not even, you know... He's he's amassing support, mm-hmm. but you have to kind of wonder, like, why is he even bothering with amassing support at this point? Because his plan is not apparently to attack and fight Saul directly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The ma- I mean, he's mainly just kind of he's protecting to, himself. Yeah, stay alive. <laughs> but I don't know. It's just it's a very weird situation. It, it really is, and but at the same time, you know, if you. Think about it in context of, or the context of David foreshadowing Christ and the idea that, you know, just like um, Jesus did, David is drawing crowds of the, of the displaced and the marginalized. Mm-hmm. And Jesus won the, the victory. I mean, it's finished. He said this on the cross. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he hasn't fully restored his reign to this earth yet. Sure, and sure. so I, I kind of see that parallel in there, that there's this idea of, well, this is how things were decreed to go and, and the, the timeline that was laid out, and we have to let it finish out before it's time to inaugurate this new rule. And that, that's kind of where I go with it, because even with Jesus' ministry, 
when we look at where he was ministering to people, he's on you know the the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. He he's in the boat by the mm-hmm. and where's David? I mean, he's in the same kind of locations with these people. And is he preaching sermons to them? No, but I could would bet you dollars to donuts he's teaching them psalms. He he's he's giving them these insights through his music. And I think that's part of what was drawing people to him because David understood truths about the spiritual realm that seemed to have been lost to so much of the, the nation along the way. Sure, sure. So well, I guess that kind of makes sense. Well, I hope so. <laughs> um, so David, uh, verse 10, he says, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him on this day, come uh, on his day to die. Or he will go down into the battle and perish. So, so David is referring back to what happened to Nabal. Remember, the Lord struck Nabal and killed him. Mm-hmm. So David's realizing, hey, hey, wait a minute. There's other ways for God to handle this. I don't have to work out salvation with my own hand. Mm-hmm. He, he really took what Abigail had to say to heart. And because he saw it enacted, his faith has really been built up to be ready for this moment. And so when David's speaking here, he's not speaking prophetically as in this is what's going to happen. He's just saying, I see a multitude of ways, or you know, at least a couple of different ways, that God can work out his plan, and I don't have to manipulate. Well, it's, that, it's that imagination aspect that we talked exactly. about before. Where, and I know people probably hate that word, but it's, it's that... <laughs> it, I'm not saying that God's imaginary or that David's making right. this up. It's that... I, that ability to um have a vision have a vision of possibilities to, to, to be able to think of of more than just the obvious solution mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's kind of what david's doing there and you know it's a hard thing to do and you know we've all been in situations where we think that the the path ahead is so simple it's so clear cut this is just exactly how it has to be mm-hmm. and we can help god out if we just, you know, do a few things, maybe they're a little questionable, maybe it's not quite kosher, but at the same time, it, it's still moving us down the path we think we should be, you know, that whole, mm-hmm. the ends justify the means. And God's saying, no, you have to trust me that I will fulfill what I've said I'm going to do. I will accomplish what I said I'm going to accomplish. And even if it looks like things are falling apart, you still have to be faithful to the commands that God has given to, to govern our lives. Mm-hmm. And we don't get to play fast and loose with what the, you know, the black and white commands of the scripture are just because they don't make sense to us. Right. And so that's, it's hard. I, 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 I get it because I, I know that one of the things that we were kind of taught growing up was to consider all the different possibilities and you, you'd sure. like, okay, we, well, and, and I, you know, and I, I do think it's worth it to kind of clarify, you know, you mentioned the black and white commands of scripture, you know, of course, then everyone wants to go, oh, well now you're just. You know, you're trying to be a Judaizer. Or you're trying to mm. to say that we have to be kosher on everything, but it's it's like, well, no. I mean, you know, the the Bible's very clear about the commands that we're supposed to follow mm-hmm. as Christians, mm-hmm. and basically, it's you know the the repeating of the Noahic Noah Noah Noah. Noah. Yeah. Noah Hyde. <laughs> Noah Hyde. Noah Hyde. I don't know. Yeah, you're yeah. good. <laughs> well, that and, and covenant. Yeah. Yeah. That, that and then also how do we treat strangers living among us? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, very simple. Don't kill, don't offer meat unto idols, avoid blood, and you know, avoid, avoid sexual, sexual immorality. immorality. It's yeah, uh, it's it's yeah, the the 
two out of three out of four aren't bad. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) it's very very basic stuff, and yeah. So we're not, you know, we're not like trying to pile on the Old Testament commandments again. We're we're just saying that you know, if if you read Acts, you you understand where we're coming from. Yeah, specifically Acts fifteen, and so in the idea that you know, okay, God says let's take one that shouldn't be controversial, that it shouldn't be. Right. Don't commit adultery. I, right. I, I don't think that should be controversial in, in any forum. Uh, okay. Lots of people, I've heard so many people tell me their excuses for committing adultery and it, they think that they were justified in it somehow. And it, you're not, you're right. just not. Uh, and so when I say black and white commands, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. It, it, we don't have to, um, we don't have to follow the ceremonial or ritual laws. We we can just follow the moral laws, and they really don't demand that much of us. I mean, if you really stop and think about it, they are not oppressive at all. Jesus was not lying when he said, my yoke is easy and my burden mm-hmm. is light. Mm-hmm. And so we can trust him with that. So I didn't mean to get into all of that. But... No, no, I just thought we should <laughs> clarify there, because, I mean, you you have been accused uh, from time to time of of siding too much with the Old Testament. You need to to pick which Bible you're going to read. Is, uh, what you've this, been, was, is that what it was? Yeah, it, there is that. But, but there's there's only one that I know of. So Yeah, exactly. And uh, each one informs the other. And if you're only reading one, you're missing out on some really great stuff. And you know what? God, look at that Bible. It's not that thick. If you can't appreciate that big of a book, then you need to go back and take some reading lessons. Anyhow, uh, oh, so oh. not to be, you know, too much of a fine point on it. So verse 10, (laughs) David makes an oath uh, as a sign of his faith, as the Lord lives. And and then he, like I said, he was listing the the ways that Saul might die. And and he was referring back to, to Nabal. So David's vision and perceptions of God, they're expanding with each new event. He he's, he's increasing his faith and Saul, you know, he doesn't have to be killed uh, by David because God will do with him what he likes. So verse 11, David, he, he reiterated, reiterated, that's a new word. He reiterates that, um, you know, God, that he will not kill God's anointed. And he tells Abishai to, to take the spear and to take a jar of water. So in verse 12a, though, we find out that, well, I'll just read it. It says, so David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and went away. Now, this is one of those great supposed contradictions of the Bible. Um, the idea that David told Abishai to do it, and then David did it himself. Okay, number one, uh, maybe David just changed his mind. We don't know. Maybe he, one of the suggestions that the rabbis came up with, and I thought this was great, he may have thought the spear might just be a little too close to Saul's head not to tempt Abishai beyond what he could endure. Uh, Possibility. But also, if somebody does something on behalf of a king, it's like the king is doing it. So we got a couple of different things that could be going on there. I'm not really, uh, this does not destroy my faith, and I don't think it should destroy anyone else's. And so uh, when people like to cite contradictions, this is one that comes up. Well, I mean, if you're committed to a system, you'll grab at any little hair to justify it. Right, right. And it's... To me, it's a non-issue, and I, I don't see why anyone would make a, uh, anything out of it. So, verse 12b. And if it was a scribal error. Oh, no. Yeah, we, oh. we missed maybe two or three words here. Right, uh, which, you know, sometimes that happened. And so, but the, 
the great thing is the purpose, message, and intent of the Bible is still intact. And the fact that it has been intact and kept intact over all these millennia is amazing. Yeah. And so let's celebrate the successes. So verse 12b, um, we're told, no man saw it or knew it, nor did any wake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. So the writer shifts his his focus back to reveal the intent of the story. And, and the intent is David's only able to go into the camp because God allowed it. Mm-hmm. God has made this possible because he had sent this deep sleep over all the camp, putting 3,000 men to sleep at once. If you've ever been at church camp with, you know, 100 kids, you know how hard this is. And, you know, it's not because David and Abishai were such cunning warriors. They blended in and they stealthily, you know, managed to get around. They actually um, were reliant upon God's ability to, to make this happen. So the, the deep sleep from the Lord, we actually find this phrase um, in a couple of other places. One is Genesis 2.21, and if you'll remember, that's when God put Adam to sleep so that he could take the rib or the, the part from Adam, whichever it is, uh, to create Eve. Genesis 15.12, when God makes the covenant with Abraham and he puts Abraham into the deep sleep. And then again in Isaiah 29.10, we hear it before the uh, siege of Jerusalem, God causes a people, the people to sleep so that they cannot hear the words of the prophet. And so at each of these junctures, uh, what we're finding is there's a formation of a family, uh, a formation of the nation, David taking Saul's place, or, or the destruction of the temple. These, these happen before a, a new era in God's uh, revelation in how the, the, the covenant community is going to look. And so they're very pivotal, um, pivotal moments that reveal that a change in the regime or a change in how the creation function requires God's direct um, intervention. So when you find that deep sleep, that's the big thing. God is getting ready to change things, not humanity, not uh, some you know human actor. It's God and God alone. Mm-hmm. So verse 13, and David went over to the other side and stood far atop a hill with a great space between them. It's pretty scathing here. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, before we get into the speech, because, yeah, the speech is great. Um, I was reminded of Jotham's fable, actually. I mean, with Jotham, um, Abimelech, Gideon's son, had killed all the brothers except for Jotham. Uh, Jotham ha- has gone out on the side of the hill, and he's shouting down, and he's giving this fable of the trees about who should be the king of Israel. And who is the, you know, was Abimelech the right one to be the king, or was he just a bramble that should be burned up? And so I'm seeing some similarities with that story. And, you know, he concluded his story with the idea that Abimelech was not a worthy king. So when we, when we think of the connections back to this, we understand Saul is definitely not a worthy king. And he's the one being yelled back at, just like Jotham yelled back at Abimelech. Mm-hmm. So verse 14 David calls the army, but specifically he calls out Abner and he says, will you not answer Abner? So he's tacitly reminding people Abner's in charge here. Right. Saul has lost his mind. Saul's barely coherent at this point. Abner's the one who's running the show. And I think we, we forget that. And so Abner, you know, he responds and not Saul. He says, who are you to call to the king? 
And then this is where David unleashes on yeah. Abner. I, I did think it's funny. His name's Abner, son of Ner. So it'd be like Abner Binner. <laughs> You're right. Which is really funny to say. Uh, too bad we're done having kids. Um, <laughs> so when, verse 15, David says to Abner, are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over the Lord your king? For one of you, the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. So you know, he simultaneously, you know, look, he, he's insulting Abner. Are you not a man? You know, th- this was a huge insult to, to Abner's uh, ego at this point because he's the top ranking general in Saul's army. He's killed, you know, it, hundreds, if not thousands of enemies and fought ma- major battles. And now David's insulting his manhood. And he even, you know, in a way acknowledges that, you know, who is like you in Israel? I mean, yeah. you're, you, like you're supposed to be the best of the best. That's uh, what I heard. Yeah. <laughs> and so you should be even more ashamed of what just happened while you were asleep. And, and you know, we, I, I love the taunting uh, aspect. So I love it when the Bible has these characters that, you know, somebody that will speak up and say something that we know we would say to someone. Mm-hmm. And it's so identifiable. I mean, yeah, we're going to insult somebody who uh, is coming out to kill us, I think. Um, and I'm also reminded of Elijah at Carmel, which where had they just left? They just left Carmel. That's where Nabal's camp was, where his homeland was. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a little slight connection. I don't want to build too, too deeply on it. But, you know, Elijah has a lot of fun taunting the, the priest of Baal. So verse 16, this thing you have done is not good. I love that. This is like the understatement of the year. It's, it's not good. Uh, it's David with his words, as the Lord chosen poorly, <laughs> right? <laughs> Indiana Jones. Yeah, those are great movies, or at least the first three were. Uh, as the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord's anointed. So you screwed up. You 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 did not do your job. And now see where the keys, key, where the king's spear and the jar of water that was at his head. So. He's making another oath. Uh, Abner deserves to die. You did not do the one thing you were supposed to do, and, and death should be the result. And uh, literally, the Hebrew calls them sons of death, uh, Abner and his uh, men. It's not deserves to die, but you're sons of death. And so what do sons of death produce? They produce more death. And the, the proof that David offers, this time it's not the corner of a robe, it's, it's the spear and it's the, the water jug. Mm. And, you know, David knew what he was talking about. If we remember, he, he was an armor bearer. He was the one who stood beside Saul. So he was not unfamiliar with the way this was supposed to work. And, and uh, is there something to do with the water and the spear with life and death? There's a possibility that definitely that's it. Uh, now, the spear, uh, we'll go ahead and jump ahead of my notes here. Now, the, the spear specifically, that has been at Saul's side throughout the entire yeah. story. Well, I know there's a lot of significance because he's always got it in his hand. Yes, he never puts it down. It's a, a symbol of the fact that he is the king. He has the ability to lash out at any moment and to, to take life with this, with this spear. And so the fact that David takes it from him is in some ways very reminiscent to the fact that he took the corner of the robe and mm-hmm. symbolically 
disrobe Saul. So he he disrobes Saul the first uh, encounter. This one he he takes Saul's authority, and I mean that's that's a very telling uh, event there. Now later mm-hmm. on he's going to return the spear back to Saul, but he keeps the water jar, and so it's very interesting that he hangs on to what provides life and what sustains mm-hmm. life. Now, one reason that it's been proposed, um, the spear would have been Saul's personal possession. Right. And nobody else is allowed to have the personal possessions of a king. Uh, a water jar, that probably wasn't just Saul's. It was probably just something that belonged to the army. And so to take that, uh, it, he was basically taking what belonged to the people of Israel, not to Saul specifically. Okay. And so, and then it, of course, then you've got all the symbolism with the water and life. And yeah. so there, that could come into play. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us that. And it would be interesting to, um, to know uh, what David was thinking, because we're not told what David was thinking. Uh, we're back to David, unlike where we had him with Abigail, where we were told what he was thinking. Once again, he's kind of this little riddle for us. But we also have this great contrast between Abner and David being set up, Saul had alienated the one person who would have protected him. Right. And, you know, a lot of times when people are locked into sinful cycles, I think this is very evident with someone dealing with addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The people they alienate are the ones who would protect them. The ones trying to help them get clean. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And the other thing, too, is God would have never sent a deep sleep on, on David. So we can't just excuse, well... You know, God put Abner to sleep. Well, yes. Why did God put Abner to sleep? Because Abner's serving the wrong king. Now, there's a, there is a lesson right there, uh, because what happens when you're serving the wrong king? Well, then you're not serving the king, uh, the God that the king represents. And so Abner's in the wrong camp. And so that makes him subject to anything, any judgment that might fall upon Saul himself. And You've also got that wonderful connection uh, or contrast with um, Abishai, David's man, who was awake and going through the the, uh, camp with David. Mm -hmm. So verse 17, Saul recognizes David's voice and says, is that your, is this your voice, my son, David? The exact same words from chapters 24 and verse 16. But this time Saul doesn't weep. He, he's past that at this point. He, he already had his moment where he realized that things were falling apart. And, and this whole encounter between Saul and David is far more emotionally subdued. And you have to wonder, how deep of a sleep was he in that Abner was, willing to, was able to speak for him for so long? Mm-hmm. You know, why, why was Abner the one who, who jumped up and why wasn't Saul awake? Because Saul was a great warrior, at least at the beginning of his reign. So verse 17b, David responds, it is my voice, my Lord, O King. And you know, it's a confident response. It, it, this is, yes, it, it's me, and I still respect your office. Mm-hmm. There, there's, no, um, there's no hesitation and no doubt on David in this conversation. He, he understands the roles that each of them have to play at this point. And he reiterates his questions from chapter 24. Why do you pursue me? Uh, you know, why do you pursue after your servant? For what have I done? What is the evil on my hands? He's demanding to know why Saul would treat him this way. And he makes a new observation, and this is in verse 19. He says, Now therefore, my Lord, the king hear the words of his servants. If it is the Lord who stirred you up against me, may he, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, 
may they be cursed before the Lord. So David, in, in this new perception he has of God, this, this widening view of God's ability and how God might work things out, he actually pauses to think, maybe it's God who stirred up Saul against him. And the thing is, when he, when he accepts this, He's, he understands there's a way to repair any relationship with God, any breach in the relationship that would lead to God judging him in this way. And it's, you know, I, I just need to heal the relationship. I come back to God. I bring him an offering. I give him a good, a good savory smell that he can, uh, he can breathe in and I can please him with this. And, you know, if it's God that has a problem with me, it's okay because God is faithful and God is just to forgive those who cry out for mercy. David gets this. Saul never understands that the act of repentance and mercy can restore a relationship with God. Remember back when, uh, with King Agag, when Samuel told him, you're going to lose the kingdom. Saul doesn't repent. I mean, he mm-hmm. was on his way to offer a sacrifice already. All he needed to do was to, to repent accept responsibility, and God may have reversed his decision. We, we've seen several times in the Bible where God reverses his decision if people actually repent, and Saul didn't do that. So David goes, you know, hey, I, I know how to fix this if it's God. And I, I love that because this, this theology of compassion, if you will, hasn't been well developed in the, the scripture up until we find David. And I think that's really one of the big things about David that we forget. He really sheds the light on God's mercy and God's compassion, even for those who fail the most. Right. And, and that's, that was radical. And so um, when we, we find this, this word also for the offering, uh, it's actually... Um, to accept, to smell, and that is a pleasing aroma. We find it in Genesis 8.21. This is what Noah offers up to God after he leaves the ark, and God makes the covenant never to destroy humanity through a flood again. Mm -hmm. And so it's because Noah offered this this pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then we find it, um, oh, I guess that's the only one I kept, but uh, there's Mm -hmm. other places (laughs) that we do. But Good work. I know. David, like Noah, had a very relational uh, encounter with God. It was not just a ritual and blind observance of the rules. And Saul really demonstrates how if you're just going through the motions, you're going to miss the point. Uh, And David never has that. But he also recognizes a a second option. He says that, you know, if it's the people stirring Saul up against him, then Saul needs to get it right. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's willing to acknowledge Saul may be getting it right, but at the same time, he offers the solution, maybe maybe Saul's not getting it right. right. And, and, you know, that is actually one of the problems with uh, having that bigger imagination about God and the possibilities, because then you kind of have to go, okay, uh, the car has a flat. Is God judging me? Is it just coincidence? Is right. it, uh, maybe he's keeping me out of a car wreck later on. Uh, you know, th- there's, there's all of these things that you kind of have to weigh and go, what is happening? And it doesn't leave you with that very formulaic, very, um, it, it feels secure mm-hmm. it, 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 to be able to think, oh, if I just do this, then God will do that. And, and you know, God will not be subdued or tamed by anything we do. So 
he prescribes consequences uh, for himself if, um, if, if it is God, but then he also prescribes consequences for the men if they have stirred up Saul's uh, heart against him, and that's the thing, that they would be cursed before the Lord. Uh, so David's not um, playing games here. So 19b, for if they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, this is where we get to have some fun. Oh, okay. <laughs> so go ahead with what you've got. I'm curious if it's what I'm thinking. Well, uh, first of all, we've got to def- define what the heritage of the Lord is. Mm-hmm. So we, we know what that is. That's Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. When the Most High gave the nations unto the, uh, gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind and fixed the boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of God, but the Lord's portion is his people, and Jacob his allotted heritage or mm-hmm. inheritance. So David is specifically speaking of the land of Israel. And we have to remember that at this point, all the gods that we know of were territorial gods. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about that a lot. So David's saying, basically, by driving me out of this land, this place that God said is his, you're telling me that I'm now condemned to serve other gods. And because if you change address, you also change the gods that rule over your home. And so David is saying that to to drive someone into exile isn't just to send them away from their house. It's to send them literally away from the presence of God. Yeah which fits into that whole Naaman uh, theme that, that we're going to talk about later. Cause you know, Naaman says, Hey, I've got to go back. I've got to go serve my King. So what I want to do is to take some of the land, the actual dirt from Israel back with me mm-hmm. so that I'm not driven away from the presence of God. And I, I think we forget that there was real significance to the land that Israel was was given to live in within the Bible, that it, this wasn't just happenstance. And so I, I love the fact that David is acknowledging the significance uh, of the geography. Yeah. So you acted like you might have something no, else. I was, I was just thinking about how the, a lot of the arguments we get into online kind of seem to wind up the same way that, you know, um, well, if you don't interpret the Bible the way that I do, quit calling yourself a Christian. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think there might be a time for that, mm-hmm. but I, I've seen a lot of the groups that we're in that there's a lot of people who just, they'll just, I don't know, it's just a weird thing. They'll just... You're a heretic, a blasphemer. Yeah, they, they'll like type up a phrase, if you believe these three things, you're a heretic. If you don't believe these things, you're a heretic. You And it, and it just goes on. and. And just like, I don't know why they decide to just like wake up and and post this stuff. I saw, but it's like this is not a productive conversation, right? Right. It's not building relationship at all. And what I I know well, it's group- not just it's not just not building relationship. It's not building anyone up, and it's not even necessarily it's not even necessarily calling someone out on an error. Right. It, it's just it's just posting stuff that. And it's like all this obscure stuff, too. That's the thing that drives me nuts about it. And I'm just like, guys, calm down. There's lots of things in the Bible that are kind of ambiguous. And, you know, really, we just have to get, you know, 
that, you know, Jesus is Lord and, you know. And do the best we can. Yeah, and go from there. I mean, everything else, you know, the rest is commentary, right? Oh, well, one of the, the posts I saw like that was like, if you're a woman teaching Bible, you're a Satanist. And I'm like, oops, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, silly I, me. I, I missed that memo. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because well, yeah, I, mean, I, I can verify. I don't know what's going on with my mic. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know if I'm getting it closer than normal, but that was really loud. But, you know, I, but yeah, I'm like, I'm fairly certain you don't have an altar to Satan somewhere. And at least not that I know of. I haven't no. checked your whole camera. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But. Yeah, that's the thing. It's so many like, places to hide it. There's, there's a little more involvement with that, I would believe. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it, and that's the, that's the thing. I, I w- there should be grace for those things that the church has historically had disputes on. And I was actually in preparation for the commentarians um, video that we were supposed to record earlier that uh, or podcast. Anyway, was reading uh, some different views and. I thought one of the things I came across, and I wish I could remember uh, the totality of this. I was reading so much, but one of the things that was brought up was this idea that if you have an answer, a concrete answer for things that the church has routinely and traditionally disputed or had various um, diverse uh, views on throughout the ages, you're probably in heresy. And I'm like, whoa. Okay, I had never heard that, but the mm. idea that there are certain uh, certain teachings within the Bible that maybe God wrote them the way He did, so that we would be engaging in these conversations and not feel too secure with our idea that everything we've got figured out is just the way it is. Sure, and you know, and I, I, I feel like I've read enough of my Bible to know that that God's a little more contextual. <laughs> Yeah. Than, and relational than, than people want to give him credit for right and uh you know it's not there are, now there are some things don't get me wrong i'm mm-hmm. not saying i'm not i'm not an antinomian <laughs> there are some things that as we mentioned earlier those black and white black commands. and white but there are some things that you kind of have to look at and go no there is a situation here that's beyond the norm it's descriptive not prescriptive if you want to you know use the good seminarian oh language well i mean yeah we can use that but that that's been so abused by it has so many been crowds that i might consider nearly heretical i'm not gonna <laughs> uh just condemn them but that's that's been one of their catchphrases lately they've latched onto and just pummeled it to beyond any actual meaning uh, yeah well and that's that's the problem when we when we think we've got a handle on something and we, we think we understand something to the nth degree and you know we're smarter than god uh, or God got his ideas from us, uh, we're, we're having, pro- you know, we have a problem with that. We should have a problem with ourselves. And we really want to keep an open enough mind, and I know a lot of people condemn that. We want to keep an open enough mind that we can be taught from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And even if that goes against our bias or our agenda or, you know, what we think was right, or even our tradition that we inherited, yeah, well, and that's and that's one of the, that's one of the arguments that drives me nuts too. Is anytime you disagree with these people who are in certain camps, they're like, "Oh, well, you think you're smarter than God?" No, I don't. I read the book he gave me. <laughs> right. I got my information from him. <laughs> well, and that's the way it should be. I'm definitely not smarter than God. I mean, if you can conceive of someone being smarter than God because they believe something different than you, then your God's not big enough. <laughs> I. 
I'm sorry. I'm getting on. I'm, We're going to feed you some lunch. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's getting past lunchtime. I haven't eaten anything since about seven o'clock. Well, yeah. Okay. So the, the beauty of this, and, and we'll, we'll wrap it up with this, but the beauty of what David is saying is when we find it in Acts 2, when we see this full reversal of what was set in play back with the Tower of Babel, when the earth was divided and the sons of God were appointed to the nations. And now Israel is the inheritance at the point of time David's living. But as New Testament believers, those of us who have followed Christ, God reigns wherever we live. Mm -hmm. And he reigns within us. And we actually get to determine which bits of ground belong to him by how we conduct ourselves. Yes. And well, and that's the thing about being devoted to God, because there is, I mean, because here's the thing, as much as we would like to think that we can't rob people of God's blessings if they're really following God. I do think there are people who want to follow who just get worn out. And, and mm-hmm. there are people, I mean, it's like Jesus said to the Pharisees, you've, you've, you've hidden you've, the keys to knowledge, hidden the keys. You don't use them yourself mm-hmm. and you won't let anyone else use them. And so and woe unto you. Yeah. And, and you so, know, I don't know what's going on out there, but that sounded <laughs> exciting. So. Uh, they're having a lot of fun. It, and I think one of the things that we, we need to be aware of is that, yes, there are some absolutes in the Bible. And I think God was very careful to make absolutes very clear. We, we, we don't have to uh, question certain things. And whenever we're finding um, clarity and absolutes, usually it's repeated over and over and over again in Scripture. We find it in several different places. And where we have these, in what you know, quote-unquote, ambiguous teachings is whenever we are taking a single verse, a single phrase, and we are not looking at it contextually, we're not looking at it historically, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's not confirmed in several places throughout the Bible. It's not confirmed in the na- narrative. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so... We can or at least the bad interpretation is not confirmed. Usually, the scriptures confirmed somewhere else, and the correct reading of it's usually confirmed somewhere exactly. else. But the misreading is not exactly. So when we want to talk about women uh, teaching, uh, which is highly controversial, I know. But okay, Jesus sends the woman at the well to talk to the people in the town, and he sent her, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we and we you know God sent Abigail to to David. And mm-hmm. she stopped the king from making a mistake. So there is a place for women to speak up and to use their voices. And we see that in the narrative, and we see those women being honored. Yeah, and, and, and Paul tells women to cover their head when they're prophesying. Yeah, kind why, of. <laughs> why, would he, why would he tell them that if they're not supposed to speak in front of the church? Right? Yeah, yeah. and I mean, so, you know, and not to, you know, that's just a really handy example, and, I, you know, not to get too far adrift in that. Those are just a really handy example how when you read the totality of the scripture, then this one verse that, that has been kind of, you know, abused to mm-hmm. and used to excuse a lot of really bad behavior on the parts of some men and even some women, mm-hmm. uh, it, it doesn't have that same clarity of the don't kill, uh, of don't, you know, don't have any other gods before me. We can talk about all the Ten Commandments and see how those are demonstrated throughout Scripture. And over and over again, we, we see the confirmation of how they should be applied. And so, um, you know, are there going to be issues within the church where we're going to disagree doctrinally? Absolutely. Um, we see that with different denominations, but we should still be able to hold each other in respect and we should be able to honor each other for the things that we do get right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if those things we get right are good enough and they're big enough, they're great enough, 
then we won't have to worry about all these little side issues because we can just be happy enjoying what we share. Well, and, you, and if we can learn to celebrate and love each other uh, because of those things, we might mm-hmm. be more receptive to uh, people when we are in error and need to be corrected. Because, Absolutely. I mean, I know, I'm, I know I don't have a perfect theology and I'm constantly learning and correcting and, and, and trying to fix it, but, you know, trying to let God fix it and, and it, it's a process and it takes forever. So anyway, I think I, I heard a quote somewhere that said, if your theology today is the same as it was five years ago, uh, you've probably got a problem. I, you know, something along those lines, because we, we should be growing and just like David is. And that's what I love about this story is we're seeing how he's progressing. And it was the, these real life tangible events that impacted him. And God has allowed us to see how those events actually changed David's perception of God himself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he didn't get it just reading the Torah. He got it through lived experience. Right. And, and so I think that's a pretty beautiful picture for us to latch hold of and, you know, maybe stop and ask, what has God been teaching us through our experience? Are, are we interpreting the, our experience correctly and interpreting it with the aid and through the lens of the Bible mm-hmm, itself? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, experience alone isn't enough to build a theology on. But it might give you some understanding of how to, um, you know, flesh out some of the theologies that that we've lived. Yeah. So, anyway. Okay. Well, we should we should wrap it up there. I kind of got a little ranty at the end, but uh, <laughs> if you want to join the rant, uh, RavenCreeksc.com or RavenCreeksc on all the social media, um, we would love to have you there. Um, send us your messages, your feedback, um, complaints, corrections, even if you have any. Rant back at Nathan. Yep. No. <laughs> Emily's email address is no, <laughs> kidding. So anyway, uh, no, we uh, join us on the internet. Have a good time, and we will see you next week. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.